Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from train spotting author Irvin Welsh about his Britbox drama Crime. RTE Acquisitions and co-pro chief Dermot Horan on changing attitudes to UK and US shows, plus Banerjee Global Head of Content Operations Lucas Green and Fremantle Director of Global Entertainment Rob Clark on how streamers are shaking up the format's game. Trainspotting author Irvin Welsh linked up with Marcella producer Buccaneer Media for a drama called Crime, based on his book of the same name and co-written by long-standing screen partner Dean Kavanagh. The six-part series, which debuted on UK SVOD service Britbox, stars Dougray Scott as Ray Lennox, a grizzled Scottish detective suffering flashbacks to his previous cases. Buccaneer, launched by former Lime Pictures exec Tony Wood with backing from Cineflix, got together with Scott last year to launch a Glasgow-based production outfit and the company's already developing a number of other Welsh projects, including a series in which actor Robert Carlyle will reprise his role as Begbie in Trainspotting. Welsh spoke to Michael Picard about crime, the process of adapting the series from the novel and how he got into writing in the first place. I mean, just take us back to the beginning... When did you kind of embark on your writing career and, and what was perhaps that moment where you knew you wanted to be a writer? Uh, I think that I knew that I wanted to be a writer when I failed in just about everything else or that everything, everything else I did didn't give me the level of satisfaction that writing did. I mean, music did, uh, but I didn't make any progress or headway in music. And then I thought to myself, well, you know, the, the songs that I'm writing are, are kind of ballads, basically, which are just stories. So dispense with the music and focus on the stories and it kind of grew out of that Uh, and I think that um, it was out of desperation really I thought I'm going to have to write this novel that I'd always promised myself that I would write and when I kind of got to start to creep towards 30 I thought this is it now I've just got to do this now and I gave myself a year to do it and uh, I finished it and then I got the bug so much I just carried on from there. So it wasn't so much finishing the first novel, it was getting right on to the second book that made me realise that I was actually a writer and I'd found my, my niche, if you like. I mean, tell us about the, the book that kind of made your name. You know, was there one moment or one title that you, you kind of, things changed for you? I can imagine what it might be, but tell us in your own words. Yeah, the, well, Trainspotting was my first novel and uh, it was very, uh, it was strange because it was, it was almost like an overnight success. It became a cult novel, then it became... Uh, kind of bestseller, then it became a big stage play, uh, won won awards, and then it uh, became the film and it went global, and the book kind of sort of went global. Uh, And uh, so there was like, um, there was no failure at all. It was just, you know, it was one of the biggest publishers in Britain that took me on, and it was like a huge success. And it was a contrast to what I'd, you know, music, I had no, made no headway at all, and it was all failure. So um, I kind of... um, it was it was such a strange thing. It was such a, almost an embarrassing thing to to have this kind of success after having had this sort of failure in in the first thing that I'd you know the first writing that I tried. And uh, I know it's not the case for most writers. They kind of you know they, they struggle before they get any recognition if they get recognition at all. And um, how did that maybe then change your mindset or your career going forward, having such a huge success at the start? Well, it was it wasn't so much the success as I said. It was the um, the fact that I found something that I could do and I enjoyed doing and I got a lot out of and so I was just basically knocking off book after book after book and I wasn't really the actual success and the sort of the, you know the the acclaim and the, the sort of 
kind of the fame, for want of a better term, and the trappings of it. Really, I just dipped in and out of that. I wasn't really that concerned by it. I just I was so relieved that I found something that I could do. And then, then how did your writing, I guess, diversify into TV and, and film? What was your kind of first entry point into that side of business? I think uh, when we adapted The Acid House, my, my second book uh, with um, Channel 4, we did, it actually came out in Film 4 as a, as a movie, but uh, originally it was planned to come out in Channel 4 as a three-part TV show. So the first one was kind of shot, um, called, I think it was, um, it was actually called The Grant and Star Cause. It was shot as a sort of, um, as a TV, um, uh, as a kind of TV program. And that was the, the first introduction to it. And uh, then I spent, I mean, I spent, um, 10 years in America, and I worked on several different shows. I worked on a couple of HBO shows and one AMC show, uh, which didn't uh, eventually, not, not, none of them got made, but um, it was such a, a good experience for me, it was such a good learning experience to work out how you kind of put um, a show together, how you put a kind of um, a long-form TV series together. Uh, so that stood me in good stead, basically, and... Um, being out there in Hollywood and it was kind of quite a nice apprenticeship for television and to come back into the UK and to kind of recommence working with Ian and, and this show was, was fabulous. So tell us um, a bit of the story of, of crime and you know Lennox at, at the heart of the story. Um, yeah, I mean the, the story in the, the book was about him in Miami being... Sorry, can you use the title? For yeah. Us? Sorry, thank you. <laughs> uh, the story of crime in the book was about Lennox uh, the, the main character being cast adrift in Miami, this kind of stranger in a strange land, um, and recovering from this terrific, horrific case at Edinburgh, which is told in backstory. Now, for the purpose of the TV show, we've actually focused on the case that's being told in backstory, which is also about, you know, about how Lennox came to be the kind of person that he is, the character that he is. So we basically took... What was only about 20-25% of the book, and we inflated that into uh, a six-part TV show, which was was brilliant in some ways because we could write originally as well as um, as well as you know, having the structure for for adaptation. So it was like um, it was like having a cake and eating it really. So it was like, it was a good experience. I mean, tell it, take us back to I guess the beginning of, of that project and, and meeting De Grey and, and then coming on with Tony and, and Richard at Buccaneer. How did that kind of organically come together? Yeah, I'd, I'd been friends with Dougray. We'd kind of, um, we're both hip supporters. We're both kind of from East Central Scotland, sort of working class East Central Scotland. And um, we were kind of, um, we kind of, you know, we, 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 I think we we first talked about it at a, a do for Frank Sozzi, who was one of Hibs' kind of top players and uh, excellent player, great guy. And uh, we thought, you know, we'd want to do this. And uh, I was living in Dublin at the time and uh, Dougree came to see me in Dublin and we talked about how we might do it. And we went through, we, we, we talked about it as a movie first and then we went through a few different producers and then we realised that uh, it was actually made for long form TV. But at the time we were just a little bit ahead of the curve because while all this was happening in Britain, we didn't really have streaming, in, in America, sorry, this was happening in America, we didn't really have streaming platforms in Britain to that extent, um, and uh, but we got together with um, with Tony Wood at Buccaneer, and Tony was very incredibly supportive of the project, and he was very enthusiastic about it. Uh, and um, we took it originally to ITV in Polly Hill, and Polly was incredibly positive and supportive about it as well. And um, 
She was saying we'd love to do this on ITV, but it's going to be very difficult to do without making huge compromises. Um, and she told us about BritBox, which was being set up then uh, as a streaming platform. And it just seemed to be the ideal place for it, you know, behind a paywall where you can really let rip without having to sort of compromise to a mainstream audience or a notion of a mainstream audience uh, and let it find its kind of legs there, you know. So, uh, yeah, it was um, it was great. It was uh, Buccaneer were brilliant to work with and um, Dugray and I were just being, you know, it was a passion project for him. He just wanted to play Lennox. As soon as he read the book, he wanted to play Lennox and... Uh, it was it was great that he was um, he was so invested in it. He's given a career best performance. What would you tell us about Lennox? Who maybe people haven't read the book. Why is he such a conflicted character? Why does he stand out among TV detectives? Well, I think the interesting thing about Lennox is that he's not an actual. He's not really a cop. He's not really a detective as such. He's like um, he's a victim of abuse basically, and it's a niche that he can't scratch. And he's driven because of this. He's driven to hunt sex offenders and uh, particularly paedophile sex offenders and that's where he comes from that's his whole his whole raison d'etre and he, you know he actually believes that by doing this he's kind of cleansing himself and purifying himself and getting over this post-traumatic stress that he suffers from uh, when he when he isn't actually really in some ways he's just exacerbating it and kind of picking at the scab but um, it gives him you know this um, it gives him this kind of uh, deranged power basically to sort of to hunt down the kind of the most kind of horrendous of um, of offenders basically so that's that's his sort of whole thing right and tell us a bit more about your collaboration with Dean your, your writing partner what's that process like of of taking the book and, and taking that part of the book and then fleshing it out to a, a six-part series well, the, the thing about working with Dean is we've been doing it for years now. We've been at it for 20-odd years and we've kind of done um, all sorts of different things. So there's quite a, a powerful kind of element of trust. And it's like, and it's it's also like you don't really, we don't really, um, we don't really think about kind of who's going to do what or who's doing, you know, it's just a very organic process. We'll, we'll sit down, we'll kind of... Um, We'll go through, if it's an adaptation, we'll go through the book. If it's an original, we'll just sit and kind of make some bullet points about what it's all about. And um, then we just start generating ideas and knocking them back and forward. Um, with crime, obviously, it's an adaptation, so we had the rough structure there. And it was mainly about um, finding out who the, you know, not so much about Lennox, because we had so much on Lennox, but um, about the other characters and how we could give them a kind of arc. We didn't want there to be... We didn't want it to be like kind of cop number two or, you know, or detective or WPC3 or something like that. We wanted every single character to have this arc so you could actually envision a spin-off featuring every character, basically. You know, we wanted it to have that kind of depth to it because it's, um, it's not really a crime show. It's not really a sort of... Um, it's a kind of uh, psychological thriller. It's an existential thriller. It's about the characters primarily. So... To make um, Lennox really shine as a character, you have to have really kind of strong, realised characters around them that are all pulling their weight. Uh, and because we did that, we attracted a, an amazing cast. Um, and not just for the, 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 the big airtime roles, for the smaller parts, we, had, we, we got really kind of talented actors at the top of the game, and it was, it was fabulous, and they all shone. You know? So um, that was a, a great thing to do. Right. I mean, how would you compare writing a TV show to a, to a book? What are the things you've learned? What are the things you like and maybe don't like about each process? Well, I think the um, I think the, the the fortunate thing was that um, 
I'm not a great, I've not, I've not watched a lot of British TV, you know, I've lived out of Britain for 15 years and um, I've kind of, uh, I've not been a big fan, basically, of the kind of, of the standard kind of police procedural dramas that we have here. And I have been more schooled in, uh, you know, from the HBO stuff from The Sopranos onwards. So I have a, a, a kind of come into it with a, dif a different sensibility, perhaps from kind of traditional TV writers here. Um, and uh, I just kind of, you know, we, we we wanted to do something that looked quite big and cinematic, you know, so it was, uh, we had, you know, we had a fantastic cinematographer and, and Will Pugh and, we had a, and Tom Sawyer with a great set designer. So we wanted it to look big and different and not like a British cop drama, you know, where people were just coming in and out of doors and calling each other kind of gov and ma'am and all this kind of nonsense. We wanted to, it to be like a ship of fools where the cops were kind of more messed up than anybody else, basically, you know. That, you know, so it just seemed to to us to 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 you know to to, to have a, a similar feel to it as an American show like True Detective, basically. And, and just in comparing to to writing a novel, I mean. Well, compared to writing a novel, I mean, a novel is something you're you're there on your own. You know, you're just um, you 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 sit in this kind of locked room, and basically you have this big you go to war with yourself, really, to try and smash this thing out. You know, whereas. Um, with a, a TV thing, it's much more structural. You know, the devil is in the details and you have to spend a lot of time um, and it's much more collaborative. You know, you have to bring in people and you have to you have to work with people and you have to kind of, um, and you get, you know, all the great things about that, you know, that you, you learn so much more. All the frustration things about that, you know, you can't play God and all that. You have to be a, t a kind of team player. So it is an interesting thing. It's a very, very different um, process. I mean, in some ways, you've still got you know you've still got the beginning, middle, and end, and the sort of elements of storytelling. But um, because you're telling it in pictures, it's a much kind of uh, different way of thinking about things. Right. And and just finally, where do you see yourself going forward? Are you an author, a television writer? Where do you want to see yourself? I've never really put any. I've never really seen myself as an author. Um, you know, even when the books, you know, when I started out writing, it became successful. I just saw myself as a, a generic writer. I don't really care whether it's for kind of, um, you know, whether it's for cinema or television or whether it's music or whether it's theatre or, or, you know, whether it's novels. I just see this as, you know, projects just come to me in a different way and I'll just operate on that basis with them. RTE Director of Acquisitions and Co-Productions Dermot Horan was among the overseas buyers in attendance at the London screenings last week on the hunt for the latest hit shows to fill the Irish public broadcaster's schedule. He spoke to Karolina Kaminska ahead of the event about the kinds of shows the company's looking for, those it has coming up and how attitudes towards UK and US programming are changing. He highlighted a need for shorter-run dramas and spoke about RTE's relationship with BritBox plus other co-production partners. Let's look a little bit at, at demand at the moment for UK content in Ireland. Um, what sort of demand are, are you seeing? And that can be for both finished programmes and formats for adaptation. Um, and how has it or is it changing? Um, I think possibly there is more demand, not just in Ireland, but I think worldwide for British content because of what's happening with the, the US studios. I think the, you know, the increasing number of US studios that are going direct to consumer, um, you know, like Paramount Plus and HBO Max and, and Disney Plus means 
means that there is less interesting programming available to buyers around the world. There, there is a certain amount of American network programming uh, that, that a lot of the studios are still making available, but that content actually is of less interest to people uh, because that those, say, you know, old-fashioned, and they are kind of old-fashioned now, 22-part crime procedurals, um, you know, they're very much not in vogue at the moment and people are more interested in high-end, you know, six-parters, eight-parters, um, and even, you know, and we're seeing a lot of these coming out of the UK now, like the likes of four-parters as well, because they can punctuate the schedule and they can fill holes in the schedule where perhaps, you know, broadcasters like RTE um, may have quite a lot of home production, but you might have a gap for four weeks. So you can put in a, a, a drama. You couldn't put in a 22-part American crime drama, but you could put in a six-parter or a four-parter. So I think it, it's a combination of both, you know, what's happening worldwide with the streamers, but also, as say, the appetite for shorter run series with decent stars uh, means that, that there is a very healthy appetite for British content in Ireland. Now, obviously, we're a little bit like Austria and Germany. Most people in the Republic of Ireland can receive the main British channels. So we're always mindful that um, if we buy something that's been on the BBC, that people in Ireland will have had a chance to see it already. And so do an awful lot of audience research into looking at, you know, what day was it on on the BBC? How many people saw it in Ireland on the BBC? What were we running? You know, most people were watching an RTE show, like, for example, on a Friday night, we, we have a really, really strong domestic entertainment show called The Late Late Show, which has been running for over 50 years. That will get almost a 50% share of the audience. So we know that if BBC or Channel 4 are running a drama on a Friday, probably most people in Ireland won't have seen it. So there's an opportunity for us to buy it. But if BBC were running a, a drama, maybe on a night when we're weaker, then you know we, we will always take it on the chin that a certain percentage of people would have already seen it. So we're, we're not in as advantageous a position as, say, if I were the buyer for TV New Zealand, where nobody would have seen these dramas before. But that's not to say that the content isn't good. And can you give some examples of some UK shows or formats from the UK that you've had success with in the recent past at RTE? Yeah, um, I suppose one of the things is that ITV isn't as available as BBC. So, so some of the dramas that we run have run um, on ITV in, in the past. And so we did very well with Quiz with Matthew McFadden, um, you know, Michael Sheen about the Who Wants to Be Millionaire uh, lying major, um, coughing major. Uh, and that did really well for us. Um, the Nest did very well for us, the BBC series with Martin Compson. We have also bought a couple of shows that haven't gone out yet, but we're looking forward to seeing how they'll do. So we bought um, The Teacher with Sheridan Smith, which ran recently very successfully on Channel 5 in the UK. And again, that alludes to what I was talking about earlier, these kind of four-parters where you can actually punctuate the schedule either for four weeks. And Channel 5 ran it over four nights, but I think we'd probably run it over four weeks. Um, so, so you know, that's one that we were holding uh, out our hopes for. And we've also picked up another Sheridan Smith drama, which is No Return, which is the drama for ITV. Uh, we picked that up from Studio Canal as well. Uh, and we picked up Ridley Road from Studio Canal as well. Um, so so th there's a range. I think that's what, what, what we're getting from the UK as well as a nice range. And um, we've also, and again, we haven't run it as yet, but we've picked up um, Crime, the Irving Welsh drama, Buccaneer Media, you know, set in um, Edinburgh with Dougray Scott, quite gritty, as you'd imagine, um, and a lot of drug taking, etc. That would be for our second channel. So, and the interesting thing about that is it's on BritBox. So um, BritBox isn't available in Ireland. And so for most people in Ireland, well, virtually everybody in Ireland, uh, when we show that, that will be a first run. So, so you know, platforms like BritBox or, a, you know, I suppose um, broadcasts like Channel 5 aren't as available as BBC and Channel 4. And another one we've had great success with recently, uh, very, very different, 
and it goes into very different sizes all creatures great and small so um and i know channel five have now commissioned a season three and season four and i believe invested in a flock of sheep as well production company have bought so um that goes in the tea time slot obviously a much softer kind of a drama but um seemed to capture the public's imagination in lockdown it was a lovely piece of escapism and um so so that's another drama we've picked up as well so a, a really nice range across a number of genres and you mentioned earlier about drama from the US becoming increasingly unavailable um, as the major studios are holding back content for their own streaming platforms. Do you think that UK drama is potentially now becoming a replacement for US drama because of that? Yes, as I said earlier, I, I think A, if it's available, that's really good. Secondly, you know, quite a lot of British drama is available with the kind of rights that people are looking for now because, you know, most broadcasters around the world now have their own um, video on demand players, you know, like the BBC iPlayer, RT has the RT player, but I know in Norway, the NRK player, in Sweden, SVT play. So people aren't just looking to buy linear rights anymore. They realise that the audience, um, a good percentage of the audience are watching non-linear and therefore it's really important to get the rights. So there, there is an amount of US content still available, but only on the basis of linear and, and a limited amount of catch up. And, and that frankly isn't good enough anymore for most of us. So, you know, if, if a British um, distributor can offer us content where the the rights are available. That's another reason to buy it as well. But but I think, as I said, it's a combination of the British content, yes, absolutely filling a gap where maybe people were buying American content because that, that's going direct consumer. But also, as I say, the interest in people um, worldwide and viewers watching, you know, shorter run series like four parters and six parters. And at one stage, people used to say, oh, the British don't make enough volume. You know, it, it'd be great if that was a 12 parter or a 13 parter or a 22 parter. But actually, a lot of people now want less. And even if you look at the streamers, you know, the streamers are very happy with all sorts of runs from three to five to eight to 10 episodes. But anything beyond that actually is a bit of an ask for viewers. We're mainly interested in, during those London screenings and looking at scripted content and uh, scripted content that would be, uh, you know, available for, for Irish rights. And when you work online, as we all have been, and people send you material online or have screenings online, the day job never goes away. So you're watching online, but emails are popping up, Excel spreadsheets, or have to be managed, etc. Whereas the great thing about actually going to a physical screening is, you know, you can turn the phone off for two hours or three hours and you can watch in a darkened room and you can really concentrate on assessing the quality of, of a drama. And then you also have the advantage of often having the showrunners there, the producers there, finding out what's going to happen beyond episode one. Are they planning seasons two and three? All, all that ability you have and you can do it face to face. Is there anything in particular that you're definitely not looking for at RT that just wouldn't work for the channel? Yeah, Ireland is subtly different to the UK. There's there's lots of genres that work for both the UK and Ireland, but I would say dramas about the paranormal, dramas about ghosts, dramas about the occult, um, dramas with anybody with superpowers or special powers doesn't tend to work in Ireland. Uh, dramas that are about real people um, and families, you know, tend to work for us. If I look at the, some of the dramas that we've commissioned recently and co-produced, family has been at the heart of them. So, for example, Smother that we uh, we commissioned, which is on Alibi and is on Peacock in the US. I mean, that with, with Dervla Kerwin, that's about a family. Uh, Kin that we've um, just uh, agreed to go into a season two with Bronze Studios and AMC. Uh, 
that's a gangland drama, very different to Smother, but it's about a family, as in kin, as in kith and kin. Um, so, you know, dramas about real people who are in real jeopardy. I think that's something that we're, we're very interested in. Uh, and therefore, something like The Teacher with Sheridan Smith, you know, about, uh, you know, a young teacher who, you know, is is in real peril and, and no special powers or a cult can get her out of that. That's what kind of we're looking for. And you talked about BritBox. We mentioned BritBox earlier as well. If BritBox was to launch in Ireland, how do you think that that might impact the availability of UK content for your channel? Obviously, if the likes of the BBC iPlayer or BritBox did launch in Ireland, that, that there would be an impact. That being said, there is no immediate plan for BritBox to be available in Ireland, principally because our main competitor, Virgin Media, has a very long and very all-encompassing deal with ITV Studios for all their content, including you know the soaps like Coronation Street and Emmerdale, but also I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, and a whole lot of ITV Studios produced drama. So effectively, BritBox, during the term of that extended deal, cannot launch in Ireland. So I don't think, thankfully, BritBox is going to launch, and currently the BBC iPlayer is not available uh, in Ireland. So that's a good thing as well, because we've had some great success with box sets of UK programming that BBC would also have in the UK. But you know, here in Ireland, if you want to watch, uh, you know, a box set of Line of Duty or, or Peaky Blinders, you have to watch it on the on the RT player as opposed to the BBC iPlayer in the UK. So that works really well. Uh, Channel Four is all four is available in Ireland. So you know, we do cohabit. We we we, we both have several box set series uh, that we have and and they have, and then you're just hoping that people will be loyal um, to to the RT player. So, but but thankfully at the moment, anyway, it looks like BritBox will not be available, and that's a good thing because we we've just done a really really good co-production with BritBox called The Dry, which is uh, just we're just getting some launch photographs out of that, and that's an eight-part uh, dramedy about an Irish woman in her 30s who has been kind of living life to an extreme in London, and she goes home to the bosom of her family in Dublin to go on the dry and, and give up alcohol and calm down, but actually scratch the surface, and her family are far from a regular family, like, like most families, and they all have their issues. Uh, it's a comedy drama. It's really, really good. We're really looking forward to it, uh, and we're doing that as a co-production with BritBox. And there's an opportunity to do more stuff with BritBox because, as I say, they're not available in Ireland and we're not available in the UK. So you can cohabit very well. I and mean, I wanted to ask you about co-production as well. Um, so can, can you talk a little bit about your co-production strategy, particularly with companies in the UK? Yes, I mean, we um, there's a range of co-productions and, and they all are are different in size and scale. We're always interested in UK broadcasters who, are, who want to create truly Irish stories. Uh, and so, you know, we have been involved in the likes of normal people and conversation with friends, which is going to launch, you know, in the spring on the BBC and indeed on RTE and in Hulu in the States, the Sally Rooney's first novel. So, you know, The Dry I've mentioned, which is with BritBox, that's comedy drama. So those kinds of shows, Dublin Murders, we were involved in. But these these are dramas where in certain cases like Dublin Murders or normal people were being commissioned by the BBC. So the heavy lifting uh, was being done in terms of development by the BBC. And we're very happy to get involved and help with the finance plan and, and, you know, go day and date. But something like The Dry, by contrast, which we've done with BritBox, is a true co-production. So we both had editorial involvement. We both involved from the development stage, um, you know, offering notes, etc., uh, casting notes, etc. So, so that's a really good, healthy relationship. And um, what we're also finding is that we are working with UK distributors uh, in terms of co-productions as well. Uh, I, I mean, give you an example. I mean, Hidden Assets, which is on BBC iPlayer now and is doing really, really well for them. That's a Belgian-Irish co-production. But DCD came on board as distributors with, with, with a very decent sales advance. And so there are commercial partners in that. And that's worked really 
really well. Uh, Smother is a true co-production with BBC Studios and Treasure Entertainment. Um, so BBC have skin in the game in that, and they've sold that really, really well uh, around the world. And, and, and RTE are, you know, we're, we're, you know, recouping money on that, which is fantastic on, on our investment part of it. Uh, so co- absolutely, we understand that no, no drama is going to be fully funded in Ireland by just a broadcaster and the tax break, which is a generous tax break. And therefore, we're always going to be looking for a balance uh, in the funding. And so projects that we're developing, and that's our main focus at the moment, is pro- you know, projects that we're developing, we're bringing to the market. But what we're finding is um, British distributors seem very open to Irish drama and Irish comedy because we produce in the same kind of volume um, and the same kind of, I suppose, storytelling techniques as British drama. So an Irish drama for, you know, a Fremantle and all three media, BBC Studios, Banerjee, is no more alien to them or foreign to them as, as a drama set in Scotland or, 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 you know, in Wales. It's another regional accent, you know, in, in, in the greater British and Irish Isles. And, and therefore, uh, I think we can work really well uh, in terms of working with British distribution companies. RTE's Dermot Horan speaking with Carolina Kaminska. Banerjee Global Head of Content Operations Lucas Green and Fremantle Director of Global Entertainment Rob Clark were also among those at the London screenings, presenting their latest slates. The pair spoke with Clive Whittingham ahead of the event about how the format's business has navigated the pandemic, the way streamers are shaking up the marketplace, the changing place of UK content on the global stage and the proposed sale of Channel 4. First, Lucas Green. Hi, I am Lucas Green. I'm Global Head of Content Operations at Banerjee, uh, where I work in the Creative Networks Department, and we are responsible for the circulation and production of all of our international formats. How is that? We've got actual markets coming up. London screenings, MIP TV, all of these good things are, are, are back, and we're, we're out and travelling again. What would you describe as, as your priorities as we look ahead to these markets? It's very exciting, isn't it? I think we're actually going to meet people for real, <laughs> in real venues. It's really exciting for us in the formats world that people are finally getting together um, in rooms and venues. And I think we, we're we grateful to Zoom for the last two years for keeping us together. But we all recognize that Zoom is not perfect. And actually, um, a lot of those deals and those conversations and those creative bonds that we create with our, with our clients and our producers do depend on getting together and actually talking about the shows and filling our clients with trust that these are going to work and how we're going to produce them and nuance them for local markets. So yes, we're very excited about uh, the market coming back together. And we're also talking not just about London screenings, but about how we're going to work for MIP TV. And I think, you know, MIPCOM is definitely in our agendas already, looking further down the track at the rest of this year. And we have some exciting content to talk about. I think we know that all of our producers and development teams really doubled down on development when they were stuck at home. And I think last summer, a lot of those came to fruition, were edited over the autumn, and now we're seeing a lot of those start to launch on screens and now we can get into the the global rollout and distribution of them in the wider market tell us about some of the new stuff that's uh, that's on your slate i'm sure you're keen to talk to me about limitless win which i saw got a recommission um at itv uh what else have you got that's new that uh, that we can look forward to from you guys this year absolutely and i think really good news and a good good sign for the uk format market that two of those big titles are from the uk so limitless win as you say absolutely Absolutely 
smashed it out of the park on the 16 to 34 numbers for ITV. It was their biggest new launch since the Mars Singer. Really happy with that. Um, really big, scaled up production. Um, it's an opportunity for clients to have, you know, a, to go for real big tentpole new shows with a really simple but bold premise. Um, so we're really excited about launching that out um, in all of our markets. But also, conveniently, uh, following right in its footsteps in the same slot now that Limitless Winners finished its first season is Starstruck, also from the UK. This is produced by Remarkable uh, within the Banerjee stable. And we're also really excited about this and something very different to Limitless Win, much more in the performance, singing, talent space, but also has a super clear premise, which is it's three times the fun. It's three brilliant singers creating teams to pay tribute to their, their, their idols. And I think it's got a great visual, great sense of humor, clear premise. And we're really excited about Starstruck starting on ITV uh, in the same spot as Limitless Win and we you know hope for more of the same and we're already seeing lots of interest in that globally we know that performance singing shows always in high demand it's pre-recorded so it doesn't need to be live it can be filmed in blocks and uh, yeah really really excited about that too Are there any particular trends this feels I mean fingers crossed it feels like we're getting back to some sort of normality in production and distribution and all of this now are there any particular trends as we come out of uh, all the stuff that we were talking about last year about sort of optimistic formats that can be made in a contained bubble in a studio and things like that. Are we going sort of big and ambitious now? What are the trends that you're seeing that you're looking to capitalise on? I think uh, we are absolutely seeing escapism still. Uh, we're seeing lots of formats launching and, and coming back that are filmed on islands, you know, Sunshine, Survival with a small S. We're seeing uh, lots of those shows, you know, which I think people haven't always been able to go on holiday even with the you know relaxation of, of travel, it seems to be one of the last boundaries to come down. You know, people are still struggling to go on holiday, and I think shows that feel escapist, sunshine, ambitious, aspirational are absolutely killing it. But I would say, alongside that, we're getting a lot of competitions, and I'd say craft and skills are things that people have also been doing at home, which are positive ways that they've spent their time in the pandemic. And we're seeing things on our slate such as extraordinary portraits, um, you know, MasterChef doubling down in lots of territories. We've seen a real explosion in uh, young MasterChef in, in recent weeks where absolutely, you know, expansions of those existing franchises. So yeah, cooking, craft, makeover. So interior design masters is a big one for us in the UK from uh, DSP, which, you know, is is um, making the switch over to BBC One and, and into its third season. So uh, really proud of that one. And I think, yeah, competitions, crafts, escapism, absolutely, you know, touchstones that we can all relate to and have all now to come to fruition since, um, you know, over the last couple of years. So the UK has been top of the format export business almost since it began, basically, particularly in the in the unscripted space. It felt like things were maybe changing anyway, and then the pandemic has obviously hit. Uh, how has that impacted the UK format export? So like, as you said, there's a the couple of new things on your slate are, are big UK formats, but how did the pandemic affect that sort of long dominance that the UK has had in this? I'd probably argue that the, the growth of the streamers has probably had more impact than the pandemic. I'd say that uh, a lot of the streamers are looking for titles which are new and they can take in multiple territories. So picking off, 
individual territories borne by one, uh, looking at what works in the UK and then trying it elsewhere is less at the forefront in the mind of someone like Netflix. It might be more in, in the sweet spot for other streamers. And I think now that other streamers are entering the market, whether it be you know, Amazon, HBO Max, Discovery Plus, you know, we've seen that they are happy to do individual territories. And I think that's a good sign for UK formats business. But I think those streamers looking to do massive, you know, global uh, availability exclusive deals has meant it's represented a shift in the formats exports industry. And that's probably accelerated more change in the pandemic, I'd say, in terms of those sales. They, they were down in the in the pack report that came out before Christmas that we've we've been looking at for, for some of our features. I think UK format exports were, were down 29% for, for 2021, which, which felt like a lot. Do you expect that to just bounce back now things are, are like we say, kind of back to normal? Or does that reflect a more permanent shakeup in the global format industry? I think it might be a, vol- a volume question. So I think we'll probably see fewer, bigger, better. We'll probably see those big shows that do well will continue to be robust. I mean, when we look at our really big blockbusters in the Banerjee catalogue, you know, look at MasterChef. It was adapted in 33 countries last year, you know, British format. Survivor, you know, British-born format, uh, adapted in 21 countries last year. Hunted, one of our uh, fastest-growing streamer productions. And Lego Masters, one of the fastest-selling shows in the world last year in 18 territories, you know, and moving into China and South Korea. Again, British. So I'd say those big formats are absolutely still um, bouncing back and doing well. However, I think one trend that we probably got from the pandemic was a slight reduction in the risk when all networks had to be careful about you know where they spent their money when there was so much uncertainty around. We did see a lot of new formats launch. However, we also saw doubling down of existing orders. So I think perhaps what 2021 reflected were fewer risks being taken and fewer new shows entering the market. So now that that appetite for risk, I think, has gone back up and Channel 4 are obviously you know, trying to you know, get their creative renewal back on track and we're challenging against privatisation and, and showing that Channel 4 is a, is a place for risk and creative generation of new shows. I think that we will see that bounce back. But whether or not it go, gets back to you know the glory days of the noughties where formats like Who Wants to Be a Millionaire were in 125 different countries, I think the world has changed. I, I think that the advent of the streamers has also shifted the measurement of success in format travel. And it might be that doing a massive deal for something like Celebrity Hunted, where it's a much better funded global option on a show, is a different yardstick for success than doing lots of small deals in, in lower budget territories. What do formats look like on streamers? Because obviously quite a lot of these formats, the big shiny Saturday night ones require a live audience and a live vote, which doesn't seem to suit the streaming model as much. It's a rare advantage for linear broadcasters over streamers. Apart from that, what do formats look like on, on streamers? Are they are they that different to, to linear broadcast? I'd say they're not particularly different. I, you know, you look at the massive success of Mars Singer and it's pre-recorded and it doesn't have a live vote and that's on a linear channel. I'd say that probably the the second screen experience that we used to have was was probably picking up the phone and voting for a winner but now that second screen experience is going on social media and see what everyone's saying that's probably replaced the interaction with the show rather than everything requiring a phone vote you know the democratization of these shows is now re- reflected in what people are saying online and what your friends are talking about it in you know chat rooms and on whatsapp while you're watching the show rather than needing to see what the public phone vote 
looks like. So I would say that isn't a nuance which is going to hurt the streamers because they can't always be live. I mean, we might see that change. I'm sure we will at some point see streaming platforms do live broadcasts and they, they might then look at different ways to be interactive. For now, they're not, but certainly that we think they will experiment in it. So I'd say what, you know, the question was, what does a, what does a format look like on a streamer? Well, originally, uh, you know, their first big foray into unscripted formats was in dating. You know, look at Love is Blind, look at Too Hot to Handle, massive successes. And I think they are trying more of those and they are really expanding their the breadth of their reality offering. But I think they also now recognize that reality is more than just dating. There are other types of reality shows. There's competitive reality shows. There's food reality shows. Um, I think we'll, you know, we'll probably see business reality shows. We'll see, you know, gamification. They haven't quite cracked game shows yet, uh, but I think it's about the story arc. And I think once they figure out how to, you know, create game shows and competition shows, which, you know, deliver the right metrics for them, which is really about how long you stay on the platform. You know, it's not just a pure numbers game in terms of how many people watch a show, it's completion rate. And it's how many people sit and binge and watch multiple episodes back to back. So I think those are the key drivers for reality shows on on streamers, as well as the ability to, um, you know, market the shows and to come up with a great campaign that, you know, they can get behind and use talent and use brilliant writers to, you know, bring new subscribers and and really deliver for their customers. You mentioned Channel 4 ramping up again with its uh, creative renewal. Obviously, the big chat in the UK at the moment is about whether Channel 4 is going to be privatised and perhaps why the government are, are throwing that dead cat around at this particular moment. But Channel 4 is one of the riskier commissioners. BBC also is having its funding attacked. How is that going to change the UK's position in the in the global format industry's sort of research and development, given that those are the two places that are more likely to take risks in this country, perhaps? I think that they will they will continue to take those risks and I think they need to. And I think it's their it's their big USP. And I think we as producers really um, appreciate the fact that they have created this very unique, fertile uh, formats environment in the UK with their terms of trade. And I think it would be a real shame. It's an understatement. You know, it would be an absolute tragedy if the BBC and Channel 4, as we know it, weren't there to take risks in new formats, because we're all aware of of how much revenue that brings into the UK in terms of the format exports business. Um, So uh, I I think that they will, they'll double down on it to prove that's how they can really contribute to a, a diverse and healthy broadcast industry. And let's hope that, you know, producers are able to meet that challenge and come up with the hits that will keep them, you know, commercially viable and popular. And, you know, ultimately, it comes down to us as much as the broadcasters to come up with those brilliant ideas and brilliant shows that, that viewers will come to. And hopefully that, that will retain a you know, healthy marketplace. Finally, again, from the from the Pat report, Europe accounts for more than half of the UK format exports. Do we expect that to change with the Brexit, uh, <laughs> dropping Brexit into an interview, which is always a risky thing to do? But do we think that that will change? 
change as as the effects of Brexit take hold? I don't think so. I think that we've got a great track record in the UK for coming up with great formats, great shows, great entertainment, um, whether it's in scripted or unscripted. And I think the rest of the world is still hungry for that. I think as an ex, as an exporter of intellectual property, whether it's TV formats, music, movies, it's actually one way in which as this small island, we really flex our muscles on the international stage. Um, I think that um, we've got something that the rest of the world is very envious of, which is a really diverse and creative community. And I would like to think that in the face of Brexit, that won't necessarily impact us. I think what we also see from the US is an appetite to produce shows in the UK and Europe because uh, it's one way for them to drive costs down. We know that US networks are also under pressure financially and they're looking for cost-effective solutions to potentially produce shows in Europe. And it's much easier, obviously, for American clients to produce in the UK because of the, you know, the language barrier, but also because, uh, you know, well-recognized very high levels of, of production in the UK. I think the challenge that we all face is when we're, when we're producing these shows, usually in the summer months, is how we tackle the, the talent shortage, because a lot of people left the TV industry in the pandemic. There's a shortage of great editors. There's a shortage of great line producers. And we all know that it, it gets very busy in the summer when we're all trying to film outdoors. And anyone who's tried to hire a good line producer um, in the last couple of years knows that it's incredibly tough out there. And I think what we have to do is support our freelancers better, keep them in the industry, but also have more training programs. And that's that's a big priority for Banerjee this year is to look at some of the training programs that we've we've successfully launched in the UK, in Italy, in Australia, and, and replicate those because we need more um, skilled technical members of staff to, to sustain these productions. And I think if we are able to you know deliver for our clients, whether they're linear broadcasters, whether they are streamers coming in from LA, we need great people to produce our great formats. But that's this medium and long-term solution that you guys are working on with that training that you mentioned there. What's the short-term solution for like this summer? Or is it just going to be like deepish pocket wins and the budgets of shows are going to go that way and streamers will be able to pay it and linear broadcasters won't almost? Because I'm hearing a lot about this crew crunch on, on all sorts, of, like in all, all genres of TV are, are talking about it. What's the short-term impact and solution for like this year and next, I guess? I think we're in a very privileged position at, at Banerjee, particularly in the UK, where we've got a, a lot of production companies and we have to use our scale and uh, you know our back office connections to, to support our different productions when they're in, in busy and less busy periods. And I think if that's knowing that we can share resources, we can use um, the contacts that we have to be there for each other and knowing that um, you, know, you might be able to therefore to provide a longer contract for a, a key member of staff because we know that we've got other productions within the, the wider group that they can move on to, whether or not that's using our, um, you know, our UK-wide infrastructure to support them, but also working with small indies. You know, we did it with 2LE, a small indie who produced a great show for Channel 4 this year called Language of Love. And we were able to, you know, to help them out both in terms of skills, co-production and, uh, you know, supporting your cash flowing the production in order to allow them as a small indie to be able to tackle that crew crunch um, and it, there's no quick fix and it's never easy but I think you know being able to use our connections to help both the big and the small companies ride out that wave of challenging times is a really important mission for us. Lucas Green talking with Clive Whittingham. 
Here's Fremantle's Rob Clark. Hi, I'm Rob Clark, Director of Global Entertainment at Fremantle. And, and how's it going, Rob? Because we're back on the physical event circuit. We've got London screenings and MIP TV and things coming back. We're actually going to see see each other and other people in person. How, how, how is it looking for you guys? Well, I think we're in a very good place, actually. I've sort of quite enjoyed the last two years from a work point of view. I think it's been a very successful two years for me personally, but also for Fremantle. I think we're, we're in great shape. And um, we've come out of pandemic with a bit of a zing in our step. So I'm quite looking forward to it being... I had my first day back in the office yesterday after two years, right? Because the office has been for younger people who do production, whereas I don't particularly do production anymore. So I've been sort of sent home and been working from home for two years. But yesterday I was in for the first day. So that put me in a good mood. That was nice. We're not going to go to MIT, but I'm looking forward to London screenings. I'm looking forward to seeing all our guys at an internal event that we've got, which is to launch the Spring Slate. Um, so, you know, it's, the market's pretty good and we're doing well in it. What sort of things can we look forward to on that slate? What are you guys shouting about at the minute? Because we heard a lot over the last two years about how everyone was doubling down on development while they were all locked inside. Are we starting to see some of the fruits of that? Well, we are starting to see some of the fruits of that. But some of it's been around for sort of uh, a few months. Some of it's brand new. Um, nearly all of it's launched. Some of it is about to launch. So a lot of it will come with ratings. Others come with sort of, you know, hope of good ratings. I was just thinking about it. You know, putting together a slate is quite interesting these days because this is the 35th time I've put together a slate, right? Which is quite some time in a way. And this one has shows from the US, Australia, the UK, Holland, Spain, Korea and Israel, which is where you would expect shows to come from, to be quite frank, which is where you would hope shows would come from because they're the platforms that broadcasters tend to take more notice of. So that's good. It's a very diverse slate in the sense that it's got big reality. It's got shows like Parental Guidance, which launched in Network 9, has sold to a network in America. There are multiple conversations going on throughout Europe. It's got another reality show, so Big Food Feast from Monster in Norway. Then we go into what I would call our more traditional type shows, which is DNA Singers, which is a show from Korea, which is a big studio, talent show, guessing game, blah, 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 blah. Then you've got interesting shows, which are out of Channel 4 and Talkback, who are on fire at the moment. And they've got a new dating show, which is called Dating Like the Stars, right? Um, That's the international title I don't know what it's called on Channel 4 they haven't made their mind up yet and then a show which they're calling Bullshit Detectives I believe and we're going with that title there's another Korean show which is again a guessing game so Bullshit Detectives True Bet DNA Singers Fame in the Family which is another Channel 4 show they're all guessing games all various sort of types some are game shows some half hours some hours some big talent shows so it's a pretty broad slate and why that is is because that is what the market wants at the moment so there's not a particular one thing that people are looking for and I think that sort of there's never been so many places where you can sell formats and 
And everybody wants their own twist on it. So for a company like us, it's perfect because we've never been a niche um, producer. So we're not just about game shows. We're not just about reality shows. We're not just about dating shows. We're not just about talent shows. Most of our production companies around the world do all of those. So it's sort of, we've come into our own in many ways with uh, regional SVODs, local SVODs, traditional broadcasters, global SVODs, all looking for something slightly different, slightly with a twist. So, yes, I, look, we're, 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 um, I'm excited about this slate, to be honest. And I can't say that about some of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you've done, what did you say, 35, 37? 35. Yeah, yeah there's going to be a, bound to be a dud somewhere. Um, yeah. as, as best you can. I mean, like you say, it's, it's a really broad offering at the minute. Are there any particular trends you're seeing? Because obviously the last two years, it was all about stuff you could produce in bubbles, right? No audiences and just getting it produced was kind of the trend as well as family co-viewing stuff like that is it all the opposite now big ambitious loads of audiences loads of travel is that that where we're heading now or not well no i don't think it is that i mean certainly it's not bubble nobody wants bubble nobody wants anything to do with covid so nobody wants to do a show that that doesn't need an audience when really it should have an audience that's all gone right so i think we're hopefully certainly nobody's talking as if pandemic's coming back it's sort of we've learned to deal with it we're just going to get on with it so television sort of sort of passed that phase i think the big the big trend is what i've just said which is how many opportunities there are to actually sell shows and they're not just looking for sort of new shows they're often sort of looking for traditional brands as well sort of shows that have got a track record that have got a brand that may not have ever existed on that channel before maybe new to that channel maybe new to that sort of platform but they bring with them a sort of name and a sort of um, uh, an inbuilt audience so that's certainly sort of something which is a sort of meta trend if you like Um, and then specifics I mean, it depends where, where you're looking. I mean, it's very difficult to launch something that's brand new. So if you can bring with it a bit of legacy from somewhere or a bit of nostalgia that can rely on a, on something else, that is useful. So this Dating with the Stars, it uses the big love scenes from all the romantic films that you will have ever watched, probably aren't that many if you're like me. But, you know, the sort of, the, the sort of, you know, the ghost scene where they're on the sort of play Potter's Wheel and scenes from sort of um, Fifty Shades of Grey and all of that sort of stuff, right? It uses those scenes as a premise as a dating show. And it really works. And I think in the many years that I've been here, this is one of my favourite shows I've ever seen. A, it's a great idea, but secondly, it's really well produced. So one person is looking for a date, look, find a partner, and they've got three options. And each one of those sort of options will perform a love scene from a film, which is why it's like dating like the yeah. stars. So there's no, you get right into it. You get right into sort of quite heavy kissing, you know, quite romantic sort of physical sort of nature and there's something quite sort of fascinating about that and then also these guys are being asked to act so they're coached a little bit so you sort of feel you're being let into a secret of how these things happen and there's modesty coaches there and all the rest of it and then the proof is in the pudding you know are you still interested in who she picks at the end of the day or he picks well in this case yes I really was and I got it I got it right so I was quite pleased myself for, for the episode that I've seen but it's a really good idea and then there's a show which we've got which was on RTL4 in Holland which 
is better than ever. And that uses the fact that the sort of the talent shows have been around now for 20 years. And from that 20 years, there's some amazing talent come through. So in Holland, we take, we've taken talent from Idols, X Factor, The Voice, from a local talent show that they had there for a few years, from pop stars. And they are chosen, they come back, there's no judging, but it is a competition, but they vote on each other. They vote themselves through. And it's partly a story about where they've been, partly a story about why they are better than ever. And of course, their sort of voices have matured. Their ability to sing about most songs is much more heartfelt now because they've actually had that real emotion themselves. So 16-year-old singing about loving and losing is sort of, you know, nice, but they probably haven't loved and they've certainly not lost. Whereas somebody who was in their early 30s, mid-30s, now singing about it with a bit more of a smoky voice certainly would have had that experience. And that did really well on RTL4. So that's been recommissioned and there are, again, a number of people talking about that format around Europe in particular. So I think if you can bring sort of some brand recognition to it, then that's fine. Otherwise, it just has to have quite a sort of loud or definite sort of uh, twist that's promotable. And if it's not promotable, then forget it. And we can see that sort of lots of things sink without trace. And that's really because they're not promotable. They might be quite nice ideas, but if you can't get an audience hooked in that 20-second little interstitial that you've got in the middle of Coronation Street, then forget it. They're not going to turn on. There's no brand loyalty now to networks. They'll move around wherever they want. They just want content. So they need to be drawn in. So how you promote something now is absolutely key. Are the um, formats different for streamers than they are for linear? Or is it the same but but more ambitious? Or do you pitch different things to streamers than, than you do to linear? Well, it depends what they're... It, it depends what they're asking for. So a show like Too Hot to Handle would have worked really well on most linear channels. Whereas there's a show which is on HBO Max, we've made it in the States. And that is the old Tattletales, which is a very, very old sort of Betty White type sort of panel show from the 60s and early 70s. But it's been reversioned for sort of an HBO Max audience. It's a fantastic show. It's really funny. So it's not set behind a desk anymore. It's set in a cocktail bar and it's sort of, you know, it's just different. So I think whatever the show is, if the format's strong, then it's how you actually build the look of the show around that format. Because a format's only a skeleton. You know, what you set it in and what content you have in it and who you cast, that's the sort of flesh on the skeleton in a way. So I don't necessarily think that sort Sort of a global streamer is looking for anything format wise that's different what they're probably looking for is something that's sort of got content which is the flesh of that format is, is slightly more appealing but that's always been the case i mean you would never make a show for in the uk say channel four the same way that you would make it for itv or bbc i mean they're, they're always different so every broadcaster has their own sort of image in a way and their own brand and you're always trying to appeal to that while at the same time trying to get them to sort of stretch it a little bit because you've got something that's slightly different that's never been done before you mentioned at the start about how many different um, how many different countries the formats on your slate have have come from, how many different territories. The UK um, has basically been top dog in format export for for decades. Uh, that seems to be changing. Sort of new players and, and new territories. Is that just trends that come and go? Like Israel's hot for a while, Netherlands is hot for a while. Now it's South Korea, or is this a, is this a permanent shift where the UK isn't going to be as as dominant as it was in format export? You see, I don't I don't see that in the 
fig- I don't know where you've got your figures from, right? But our figures don't show that. So as a percentage of um, the formats that are exported, the UK is roughly a third. And it's been roughly a third for about 10 years now. So it was more than that. It was over 40% the early part of the, between 2000 and 2012. But now it's around a third and it still is a third. So the what's happened is if you're counting absolute numbers, the absolute numbers of decline, and I think that is partly due to pandemic and yeah. also partly due to how you actually, what you're actually looking at. So when you say is the market vibrant, the market's very vibrant. But if we sell blankety blank, which we did this year in the UK, so Thames sold it to BBC, that will not count in any of your figures. Even though it's a it's new sale, it's not been on air the previous year, it's not counted because it's not a new sale in that territory, because there's a pre-existing sale in that territory. It also doesn't account for the fact that there are long-running British formats that have been on air forever in most territories. You know, some of the big talent shows, the sort of who wants to be a millionaire, some of the that the um, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, that sort of thing. The chase, they They've been around for a long time. They don't count. So it's sort of what you're actually looking at. So it's still about a third. What I would say has changed is value in that sort of traditionally the UK had had really almost a monopoly with the exception of Holland of high value, big volume orders. So you could look at Pop Idol or something like that as an example of that. Who wants to be a millionaire? Uh, Weakest link. All of that. And what's happened now is a lot of those formats that are traveling overseas, they're not those sorts of formats anymore coming from the UK. They're often shorter runs. They're more in that fact and space. They probably won't go to 10 territories even. So I think that's what's different. And and I always sort of think that counting those figures is a bit of a waste of time because what you really should be counting is the volume of production that's made around the world, which is UK PLC. And that would give you an entirely different picture in that it's it's still very successful. Also, the Dutch is the third most successful market and always has been. So in the whole time I've been doing this job, which let's face it, started in 1214, just before Agincourt, you know, it has been like this. It's been the UK, US, Holland, which vie up and down depending what year it is, right? And then some other territories of interest. The big player to come in is Korea. And I think Korea's slightly different to some of the other territories that have come in and gone. In that Korea has got shows which have got real volume and real sort of big high-end budgets. These shows are not commissioned lightly and when they are successful, they stay. So you can look at Mass Singer, you can look at I Can See Your Voice. Where they've worked, which certainly with Mass Singer is in most territories, then they'll be around for quite a long time. And that's a big change because before when you saw um, some countries, I'm not mentioning any in particular, but when you look at some countries, everybody would be going, oh my God, this is the next hot thing, the next hot thing. But really it wasn't. It was just that there was one format that excited everybody about that market. Very little followed from there. Whereas with Korea, you can see there's there's depth there. I mean, we've got two Korean shows on our format, Slate. We've got DNA Singers, which launched for their lunar sort of New Year festival and had amazing ratings, either Mass Singer, either I can see a voice.
voice. I think we've sort of got something rather exciting and clever and good there um, with a track record. And then there's a show which is another guessing game called True Bet. You know, so uh, uh, career is interesting. It's, it's much more interesting for me than some of the previous hot territories. Does What does success look like for you now? Because like in the 90s, obviously, you had some amazing big British shows like Millionaire is the obvious example that went yeah. to 125 territories. Do you, is that still possible now, or do you is like selling something into twelve territories? Is it does that count as as a, a big a big hit now? Look, anything that sells is a hit, right? So you know, and when from from my point of view, you if I like a show, then I like a show, and it, it doesn't. I, I think that we we shouldn't be too conscious of the numbers because also it's not a quick business. Everybody thinks that it happens overnight, and I suppose that's something that has changed in that sort of, you know, that sort of overnight success mass singer. Actually, nobody showed the damnedest interest in it for five years, including me, right? So I'm not saying, you know, I spotted it. You know, I didn't. So the business has changed. Rollout is much slower. And that's quite helpful because you never get a show right the first time out. So if you look at a show like Got Talent, with every iteration that we made Got Talent in the early days, it changed. In almost every country that we made it, it only became pretty much what it is now after about two years of rollout. And then since then, there are sort of changes in terms of like golden buzzers and stuff like that. But the actual format itself is pretty much sort of what it was. So I'd say that sort of success is still possible because we were being asked that question before Mass Singer, you know, oh, there's never going to be another big global format. You know, it's all over. It's all over. Of course, it isn't because there is still opportunity out there if you can find it. And most formats really only ever sell in two, three, four territories. That when you're talking about the big billion dollar formats in a way, there are very, very few of them. Very few. I mean, we're quite lucky. We've got quite a lot of them. But there aren't that many outside. You know, there's a handful, probably not more than 12. And then you get into the sort of take me outs of this world, which have sold into, I don't know, take me outs, probably about mid 40s or whatever. And the farmer wants the wives and, and all the rest of it, which is 30 plus, you know. And then you also, you have to look at what the value is of it. Right. So a show like Farmer Wants a Wife, which is, I think, at its in total is sold in something like 40 territories, but he's actually still on air in 35. Often after 15, 17 years, that's where the value is. The value is American Idol season 20 this year. You know, the value is Price is Right season 50 this year, a daily show every day on air 50 years. So it's not about how many territories you every format's different. So some formats, you don't expect to sell in sort of 70 territories. That's never the ambition of it. Some formats, if you sell it in sort of, if it's a UK format, if you can sell it in Scandinavia and Holland and Germany, which are the nearest markets, then you've done really, really well. Other formats, you know, if it doesn't sell, you do get a bit disappointed. But, you know, on to the next one. Um, BBC Channel 4, got to ask you about, about this as well. BBC, obviously, it looks like the content budget is going to be cut. Channel 4 potentially having, heading into private hands. We could speculate on why our government might be uh, doing that at, at this moment. What effect does it have to of the sort of riskier format commissions going in that direction? What effect will it have on Britain as a, um, a research and development centre for format development? Well, if I had a crystal ball, I would be able to answer that question, but I don't. So we don't know what the outcome of these changes are. 
right? So, I mean, the hope is that, my personal hope is it doesn't happen, but if it does happen, you've got to hope that sort of there is a recognition of the importance of the creative community in the economy and in the way Britain is perceived around the world. So if you're travelling sort of to different countries and you watch Got Talent and you watch Idols and you watch sort of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and you watch Dancing with the Stars, that says an awful lot about who we are as a nation, as well as the dramas that we make. And there needs to be a recognition of why that happens. And certainly it's because of the sort of the rich fabric, if you like, of what our broadcasts community is but you know, I mean my job is not about the UK though it, it hasn't been about the UK for 20 years I know I'm English and I know I'm based in London but from a work point of view my job's global and so I see the importance of the UK market globally probably more than most people in television and certainly probably more than anybody in the government seeing it because it really is very important and you've just got to hope that whatever the outcome of this there is a recognition of the importance that the television production community and the broadcast community give to our sort of balance of payments, our reputation overseas. But I don't want to comment on the individual sort of... I mean, I have very strong views on them, but I can't (laughs) sort of... That's not my job. And the last one on my list was Europe seems to always account for for half of the the UK exports. Is that that likely to to change even, even with Brexit? Well, I don't think it will. From my my angle right so I don't know the legislation properly but I do know that sort of when we make a show in Germany even though it's a British format we make it with Germans in a German production company for a German broadcaster with a German tax paid for in German euros and our company is headquartered in the UK but we're owned by a German company which is Bertelsmann so I don't actually think that in terms specifically of how Brexit will affect the format that market that it will have any harm however because they are local shows when they're being made you don't sort of you know they're, they're, they're German content I don't know how it will affect finished tape sales I don't know that I don't think it will be particularly helpful I think Brexit is sort of a really bad thing but I don't think it's sort of going to be a particularly bad thing for the format market I don't think it's a good thing for it but I don't think it will affect it Fremantle's Rob Clark speaking with Clive Whittingham that's all for this episode. You can hear more discussions by tuning into the weekly review show on our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.